Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Um, I'm going to kind of throw the question out to you and actually want you to participate by, by raising your hand in this. Um, so by a show of hands, how many of you think God loves you? Show of hands. How many of you think God loves you? Keep your hands up. Drop your hands if you think, or keep your hands up if you think God likes you. All right, so there's kind of a, there was some stutter in there. So like God loves you, we've been taught, you can put your hands down. We've been taught our entire life God loves you. God has sent his son in order to um, die on the cross for our sins, to forgive us of our sins because he loves us. That's the John 3, 16. But whenever we talk about does God like you, um, and when I was talking to this young man, does God love you? Yes, absolutely. Does God like you? No. I mean, like, he didn't even skip a beat. No, he doesn't. And so I was like, okay, I think that's one of the biggest issues that we have with Christianity and with what we're teaching, and primarily in regards to the law and grace, is the misconception that there's a disconnect between whether or not God loves you and does God like you. Because we preach and we teach the fact that, yes, God loves you to the point that he was willing to lay down his life by sending his son, Jesus, to go to the cross. He did all that as if it was almost this begrudging submission on God's part to us to do the ultimate act of love for then just a bunch of grumbling people that he actually never enjoys or likes or delights in. And the reason why we think that there's this whole idea of whether or not he likes us or doesn't like us is dependent upon the law. And kind of this moral law that every single day, well, if I don't pray enough, then God's upset with me and doesn't like me. Or if I don't share the gospel, then he's upset with me and doesn't like me. Or just kind of a general posture that we have of, I don't want to go to God and spend time with him Because I always have this feeling that he's mad at me, that he's upset with me, that I've done something to cause tension within the relationship between me and God. How many of you feel that at least at some point throughout the week? Am I the only one? All right, there's a few of you in here that feel that. And so I think this one, this week, as we look at this relationship between law and grace, my prayer is that by the end of this, you'll see that if your salvation was God saving you, loving you, at your worst, then there's nothing that you can do in your sanctification, in your journey now as adopted sons and daughters in Him. There's nothing that you can do that can change his mind, and his heart towards you. That if we truly believe that when you become a Christian, that he has taken, and we'll see this in a second, that he has taken the life of Christ and has imputed it to your life 
So your identity is now in him. His identity is yours. This is Galatians 2.20 language that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's just talking gospel language there. He loved me. He gave himself for me so that he could come and live in me and live through me. And that my life that was considered a sinner and unrighteous is no longer there. But rather it's the righteousness of Christ that is within me that God sees when he sees me. So that when we look at the story of Jesus' baptism and we see that the entire Trinity is present. You've got God the Father speaking out of heaven. You've got the Holy Spirit descending as a dove onto the person of Jesus Christ. And you have Jesus Christ in the waters being baptized by John the Baptist. In this moment, you have the Trinity confirming that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. That he is the Son of God. That he was sent to take away the sins of the world. And you have the Father in heaven looking at Jesus saying... And you could probably quote it for me. What does he say? This is, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. If Jesus is now living, as Galatians 2.20 teaches, is now living through my life, then God is looking at me and he's looking at you. And he's saying, this is my son, my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased pleased and that was at the beginning of jesus ministry he hadn't turned water into wine yet he hadn't healed anybody yet he hadn't done any miracles yet he hadn't done any work yet he's lived a sinless life but he hasn't done any ministry that was going to actually go and begin teaching and proclaiming what we are essentially commanded to go and do make disciples and yet god's looking at him saying this is my son in whom i'm well pleased which means there's, there's this issue be between us adding conditions to God's love and God's delight over us. And so last week, honestly, we dealt more with the idea of adding conditions to whether or not God loves us and providing salvation for us. Just the gospel message. What is the gospel message? And what we found in looking at that was the fact that we believe the gospel, the salvation is provided by God to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. And the reason why he does that is because there's nothing that we can do to make God love us, and there's nothing that we can do to make God hate us in his pursuit towards us. We are just born completely, total, depraved. We're already in the position of God's wrath and hate. Nothing we can do to change that. Henceforth, why Jesus came by grace as a gift, through faith as a gift, himself as a gift, according to the scriptures communicated to us by God as a gift, all for his glory, which is our greatest joy, again, as a gift. So that all of salvation 
No glory can be in man so that we can boast. We don't need any other scriptures or any other text or any other content. The scriptures are sufficient enough to declare the goodness of God, His character, His plan, His will for us to receive salvation. And that we don't need any other mediators. We don't need any other priests. We don't need any other pastors. You don't have to come down front and say a prayer with me and the words that I say are going to be miraculous for you in order for you to be saved. No, Jesus is our only mediator. We don't have to go to any other priests or any other rabbis or any other mediums or any other types of forms of people in order to get us to God. And that we don't have to do, so faith and works, we don't have to work our way there. Every other system of belief has a form of work and merit. Work that is, at some point you were either baptized and you were raised up and you were kind of justified before God, but then through venial and mortal sins you kind of lost that and then now you're starting to kind of work your way back up to God. And if you work your way up, if there's enough good versus bad in the end of your life when it comes to your actions, your deeds, your thoughts, all of those things, then maybe at some point you'll achieve kind of back into that righteous status versus unrighteous status. But actually, there's no system of belief that actually gets you there before death. So then it moves into death, and you've got either um, other forms of even some Christian denominations, like Roman Catholicism, for example, put you into purgatory. And once you're in purgatory, if there's enough people praying and offering penances and sacrifices on your behalf, or sacraments on your behalf, then while you're in purgatory, maybe at some point you'll be able to get up there. It robs Christ of his work that's done and adds work to you that needs to be done. And not only that, then adds work to those around you, family members, friends, that need to do work in order for you to get there. You can trace that in Hinduism, you can trace that in Buddhism, which back when I first started preaching, when I was 20 years old, I used to call Buddhism from the stage at least 12 times. I had no idea I was doing it. But anyways, you have these different systems of belief that are working their way. Reincarnation. You didn't achieve it in this life? Start over. Let's do it in the next life. There is a debt to be paid, and you just keep going down this route. And again, God's robbed of his work that he accomplished on our behalf. So in order for God to get all the glory... And for us to receive it, all the work has to be his. That's the gospel. That's what we looked at last week. Now, the interesting thing, and this is a, from a book that I read by a guy named Jeff Bridges, um, or Jerry Bridges, I'm sorry. Jerry Bridges wrote a book, and this book, he talks about the, the relationship between works and salvation. And within salvation, the idea of justification, sanctification, and glorification. Kind of three different chapters, per will, if you will, of, of all of salvation. And he says, there's this idea in Christianity that we understand if the gospel is truly the work of God, then we take our works and we throw them overboard in order to receive the gift of grace to be justified. But then we have this misconception that I need to then drag my works back on board in order to earn or keep my salvation 
from the point of my justification until I'm glorified into the day that Jesus returns or I die and go on to be with him in heaven. And so there's this constant battle. What do we do with the law once we're saved? What do we do with the moral commands that are found in Scripture that God is telling us, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, be this, don't be like this. What do we do with those commands in Scripture? And that's what we really want to look at today. And so there's a, there's a lot to kind of cover within this that's going to be kind of more classroom-esque, but I think it's going to be good for us. And so first I want to talk about is what is the law? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions around just this idea of what is the law. Known as the Mosaic Law, it's the first five books of our Bible um, that are written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's also referred to as the Pentateuch, which is just first five books of the Bible. Or the Torah, instruction, law. Contains more than 600 commands. Most agree it's 613. Although there's a few outliers who think it's 614. They're probably more on the legalist side of things because, you know... It's got to be one more. Um, The law included, but not limited to, the Ten Commandments, moral laws on murder, theft, honesty, adultery, etc., social laws on property, inheritance, marriage, and divorce, food laws on what is clean and unclean, on cooking and storing food, purity laws on the women's menstruation cycle, uh, men's seminal emissions, don't have to go into that, skin disease, and even mildew. Feasts, the Day of Atonement, Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of the Weeks, etc., sacrifices and offerings, including the sin offering, burnt offering, whole offering, heave offering, Passover sacrifice, the meal offering, the wave offering, peace offering, drink offering, thank offering, dough offering. If it was donut offering, I would be for bringing that one back. Incense offering, red heifer, scapegoat, first fruits, and on and on. There's instructions for the priesthood and the high priest, including tithes. There's instructions regarding the tabernacle, and which were later applied to the temple in Jerusalem, including those concerning the Holy of Holies, containing the Ark of the Covenant, in which were the tablets of the law, Aaron's rod, manna, instructions for the construction of various altars, forward-looking instructions for the time when Israel would demand a king. And I could continue on and on and on. The law includes a lot of things. It's not just, this is another misconception, the Ten Commandments. There are so many things that the law includes. And so why does the law matter for us? Why does it matter? For starters, the New Testament declares the Mosaic law is holy and righteous and good. Anytime scripture says that something is holy and righteous and good, it should grab our attention. Because if scripture is ultimately God communicating to his people, to the world, saying, hey, uh, I want you to see this. I want you to know this. This is beneficial for you. And anything, anytime within that he says this is holy and righteous and good, he's probably going to want that a part of what we practice and what we find to be valuable and beneficial and, and permissible within our life. Number two, the Mosaic Law helps to show us our sin. For Paul says, how would I know what it means to covet if I didn't have something telling me thou shalt not covet? It points us, it shows us our sin. Number three, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law for us. And I'll 
share more of that here in a minute. But here's the main three misconceptions that we have regarding this. And this falls under those three categories I included in scripture or in uh, salvation. Number one, justification. Justification, think about it this way. It's being removed from the penalty of sin. Being removed from the penalty of sin. A misconception is that justification comes from believing the law. So this is kind of a, this is tracing in a um, kind of a Jewish belief system. That if I just believe the law, then that's going to justify me. That's going to remove for me the penalty of my sin. I believe the law. In contrary to believing Jesus, I believe the law. Sanctification. Think of sanctification as being removed from the power of sin. The power of sin. We're warring daily right now with our sin. There's the power of sin. There's the power of Christ. Are we trusting daily the power of Christ to be able to say no to sin and yes to Jesus? To worship Jesus more and to not worship ourselves and idolatry and sin and the world. Which one are we? That's what we're warring with. That's the power that's fighting over us every single day. Are we trusting the gospel and the personal work of Jesus Christ to be able to say no to this? So sanctification, being removed from the power of sin, comes from obeying the law. If I just obey the law daily, then I will be sanctified. That's a misconception. And then the third one is glorification. Glorification, think about it as this, being removed from the presence of sin. So justification is being removed from the penalty of sin. You're declared right before God. Sanctification, you're being removed from the power of sin. You're able to be strengthened in the image of Christ. You're conformed to the image of Christ. You're thinking more like Him. You're acting more like Him. You're working more like Him. You're loving more like Him. Which the more you do that like Christ, the less you will sin. Because you're being more like Jesus. Removed from the power of sin. Glorification removed from the presence of sin. No longer a sin in your life. This is the ultimate for us. This is what heaven's going to be like for us. Is that there is no longer sin within me and there is no longer sin around me. It's completely gone. But again, a misconception is that in order for us to get there, it means that we've fully achieved the law. We've arrived. We've nailed it. All Ten Commandments checked off all 613 laws checked off we finally got there now if all of those are misconceptions what that kind of communicates is that we then don't need the law we don't need it anymore we don't need it because jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of those three things for us however that's not exactly the case jesus is the fulfillment of the law for us but does not mean that he nullifies and gets rid of the law and does not use it for our benefit. And I'm going to show you three, three different categories for why people war with this idea of what to do with the law. And I'm going to use scripture to argue each one of these categories to where it's probably going to confuse you a little bit, but trusting the Spirit to do his work here. For those who say we don't need the law, use scriptures like this. Romans 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 2, verse 16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So it's through Christ. This is what, that's, that's what we nailed last week. By Christ through faith. That is what justifies a person, not by works of the law. This view alone would be those who say God's love towards us is unconditional love. It would, it would sound something like, I love you without any conditions. It's unconditional. No law is the basis of relationship. I will do all necessary to be in relationship with you, and you need not do anything that I say, command, or expect in response or in return relationship with me. This view in other areas is also called licentiousness or antinomianism, which is just no law. This would be like God saying, I love you, do whatever you want. Or, don't do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. This, however, is unbiblical and heretical. It's unbiblical and heretical. Think about it in a marriage illustration. Wedding day vows would go like this. Hey, babe, I love you. I'm going to do whatever I want in the marriage. I'm going to come home at whatever time I want to. I'm going to date other women anytime I want to. I'm going to go on vacation anytime I want to with or without you. You can't tell me any of your own preferences within this marriage. It's not based on what you want, but solely my own freedom. All right? I do. That's not going to work out well. Those who say we do need the law use scriptures like this. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 says, Do not think that I have come to a... And this is Jesus' teaching, so he's important. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Anytime he refers to law or the prophets, he's just summering up the entire Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus elevating the law pretty significantly, right? You are to not take a dot away from it until heaven and earth pass away, which is end of times language. Until heaven and earth pass away, do not remove a dot or an iota. That's a mark from the law. Not only that, if you relax from teaching and commanding these things, then you will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven, which is language meaning you're not there. You're either in or you're out. You'd be considered out. This is pretty strong language coming from Jesus himself. People have taken this language from Jesus himself and have created a view of this. This view alone would be those who say God's love towards us is conditional love. If you obey me, then I will love you. It's conditional. Law is the basis of the relationship. 
So if the first one, no law, is the basis, this one, law, is the basis of the relationship. You must do everything necessary to be in relationship with me. This view is also called legalism or contractual relationship. This would be like God saying, I love you only if you do everything I command. If you don't do what I command, then I will no longer love you. Wedding day vows would go something like this. Hey, babe, um, in order for me to love you, I'm going to need you to take out the trash and do the dishes. And then she would respond, okay, in order for me to love you, I'm going to need you to clean the bathrooms and mow the lawn. Okay. I'm going to need you to do the laundry and pay the bills. And she says, no, you pay the bills. He says, okay, I do. Like, has anyone ever been to a wedding and the vows were that? How awkward would that be? Like, there's a reason why when we come to a wedding and we hear the vows that they speak, there's a reason why they're beautiful. That's not beautiful. That's contractual. That is every single person in the audience looking up at it and beginning to think in their minds, I give it two weeks, I give it three months, they're starting to place bets, they're going and getting their gift back because they're like, I'm not wasting $50 on this. No one is going to look at this and think it's going to go well. This is why we believe there's a third category for the relationship between law and grace or law and faith used in the scriptures. And I get this from Scotty Smith, who's a pastor down in Tennessee. Those who advocate for a relationship between law and grace use scriptures like this one. Romans 3, 21 through 31 says, and I want you to hear both within this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So this is interesting. This is a passage of scripture that is, again, laying out what we argued last week, that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ as a gift of God by his grace. This is what he is declaring. He also says here that the law testifies to this. The law teaches that this is the truth. 
But then he gets down to it. Since this is not based on the law for salvation, what should we then do with the law? Do we then just nullify it? Do we just get rid of it? Do we overthrow it? And the Apostle Paul responds by saying, no, we don't just overthrow it. We uphold it. The law, again, is holy, good, righteous. There's something about the law that is a design by God to establish flourishing in all of society, in all of every domain that is in existence. It's essentially an instruction manual of how to love God and love others, as we'll see here in a minute. But this view would be what we call contra-conditional. This is God saying to us, I love you because I delight in my son who graciously fulfilled all of my conditions. God's not unconditional. There are conditions. There's righteousness that needs to be met. And because Jesus comes and fulfills the righteous law and then applies that to us, God's able to then look at us and say, I love you because of Jesus Christ in you who has fulfilled all of my conditions. I have conditions. Jesus is the only one who's fulfilled them. But because he now lives in you, I love you. It's contra-conditional. It's not no law and it's not only law. It's law that Jesus has fulfilled that then Jesus declares to us. So when we're justified and we're declared righteous, That means our account is viewed as if we are nailing 613 commandments at all times. Past, present, future. We are seen as though we are rightly following and loving the Lord. Because Jesus accomplished it for us. It's not solely based on conditions, do what I command. It's also not based on no conditions, do what you want. It's contra-conditional. Based on my conditions fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. This view would be called gospel-centered law or covenantal relationship. Wedding vows would go like this. Because Jesus loves me at my worst and best, I'm going to love you in sickness and in health. Because Jesus loves me whether I'm rich or poor, I'm going to love you whether we are rich or poor. Because Jesus said to me, I do, I can say to you, I do. It's a promise to commit to one another regardless of whether this goes good or bad. I'm not going anywhere because I'm for you. I've seen God pursue us with this same love, therefore I do. I do. We then love one another based on the way Jesus reveals to us in his life as well as the way Jesus commands us according to the law and the prophets. Hear his words in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So I love this. Jesus has taken 613 and boiled them down into two. That he considers to be essentially one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. How many times have you heard that preached? Love God, love others. We're able to do that because Christ perfectly loved God and loved others. That sums up everything that was instructed in the Old Testament law. In order for society to flourish, the way that God designed it to work was for people to love Him and to love one another. And the way that that then actually gets applied to our life is for Jesus Christ to come and live within us in order to live through us. Now, him summing it up and love God and love others, and then us being able to see the Old Testament as a um, design for how to love God and love others, do we then obey all of it? Do we uphold all of it? That whole list of things that I gave you on all the different feasts and all the different sacrifices and all the different offerings, do we abide by or are we binded to all of those things in order to love God and love others through our relationship with Jesus Christ? Has the law been changed even though Christ himself said, not an iota, not a dot shall be changed from the law until all is accomplished? How do we love God and love others? Because everyone has a view on this. KKK think that they are loving God and loving others. Hitler believed that he was loving God and loving others. So how do we know whether or not we're getting it right? How do we know what to abide by in the law in relationship to grace? The, gift, the difficulty is that we should not dismiss all the old covenant laws. We should not dismiss all of them. But we should also not retain all the old covenant laws. For example, like stoning adulterers. Like if you learn of a friend tomorrow who's like sleeping around on his spouse, are you going to take him out in the street and stone him? That would be commanded by our Old Testament. Well, we're not necessarily going to do that. Best way that I can divide this up for us is in three categories to be able to see which ones are completely, totally fulfilled in Jesus and therefore no longer binding on us and which ones are totally, completely fulfilled in Jesus but yet are still binding on us by his grace, binding on us. The first one is their ceremonial laws. That's the kind of the, the overshot of it. Ceremonial laws, and these are referring to the priesthood, sacrifices, temple, cleanness, and so on. They are now fulfilled in Jesus and therefore no longer binding. Nearly the entire book of Hebrews is about this issue for Jews who struggled with the Old Testament laws once they were saved. What do we do with the sacrifices? What do we do with the burnt offerings? What do we do with the temple? What do we do with priests? What do we do with cleansing? All of those questions were answered in the book of Hebrews for why they were no longer binding to those laws, but rather completely fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the greater priest. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Jesus is ultimately our cleansing. Jesus is the greater than in all of those laws. The second one is civil laws. Are those, those are the ones pertaining to the governing of Israel as a nation ruled by God. This is going to sound weird, but we are no longer a theocracy. We are no longer a nation 
that has God acting as our president who is directing us by just speaking out through prophets. He's not operating that way anymore. Instead, in Romans 13, he says to us, we are to obey our pagan government because God will work through it as well. So he shifted it a little bit. Is he still sovereign and in control? Absolutely. He's using viceroys to lead nations. He's using people to lead nations. He's instituting this. So as far as the civil laws, we are to abide by our governmental local laws. The third one is moral laws. Refer to the commands that forbid such things as rape, theft, murder, and so on. These laws are still binding on us even though Jesus fulfilled their requirements through his sinless life. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, with the only exception being the Sabbath, as that is part of the ceremonial law, and now Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our greatest rest. Thus, according to this explanation, ceremonial and civil laws are no longer binding on us, but moral laws are. How do we love God? Don't kill your neighbor. That's commanded in the Old Testament that Jesus takes a step further and says, don't physically murder him, but also don't murder him within your own heart. The only way that you're not going to do that is by me coming into your heart and giving you a new heart that is then going to produce love for that neighbor, forgiveness for that neighbor, whatever it looks like. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't envy don't do those things. Those things are still binding on us. And the only way that we're able to abide by them is because Jesus Christ, who's fulfilled them, lives within us and is strengthening us to be able to abide by them. You know what would create a great society? Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't envy. Don't tear down one another. Pursue one another in love. Caring for one another. Serving each other. That's what these laws binding on us through the life of Jesus Christ producing within us is a society that flourishes. A society that flourishes. And I want to close with this illustration. Since it's the end of the school year and people are in full swing of kind of graduation parties. When a student is in school, they have laws of the nation that are kind of in authority over them. And then they also have like graduation requirements that are set by the school. And once the graduation requirements are met, a person walks on stage, is handed a diploma, stating that their obligations to the school are completely fulfilled once and for all. And then they are free to move on with their life. They're free to live their life with this newfound completed knowledge that they have. Well, as Matthew 5, 17 says, and as I read a few moments ago, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to do away with something that's good, holy, and righteous. I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. I am what is good, holy, and righteous. Because they testify to me. They declare what my character is. I'm not going to murder anyone. I'm not going to steal from you. I'm going to lead you to love and be generous. 
I fulfilled all of it because it testifies to who I am. It's a description of who I am. So much so, what this means for you is that Jesus got a perfect score in fulfilling every graduation requirement by God through his law. And through faith in Christ, his report card becomes your report card. You are therefore freed from having to go back and earn your graduation, and you are free to move on living your life in the Spirit of God, who leads you to also honor the internal, eternal principles of God's kingdom that remain in effect forever, such as no murdering or stealing, which in return ultimately loves God and loves others. So we're to view this, because I remember when I was saved, and when I moved into kind of high school freshman year, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm a believer now, I'm, I'm, I love God, God loves me, um, I want to do everything that God wants me to do, and so I was told at that time that the Bible is God's communication to us, and so if he's communicating to us, then I want to hear from him, I want to learn from him, I want, I want him to tell me what to do and not to do every single day that's going to lead to my joy and his glory. And so just like any other book, I just start reading it from left to right. And so Genesis for me was very interesting, really enjoyed it. And then the next four books, to be completely honest with you, bogged me down. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, be this, don't be this. And it was very, very law-based for me. And I didn't have any goats in the backyard to go kill and slaughter and so I started coming to my pastor at the time, and I was like, what do I do with these things? Because if being a Christian means following every single thing, then, then this is going to get really weird really quick. And then that's when he started laying out for me. Let's look through all of it, through the lens of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's accomplished, so that these things are no longer binding on us, but these things, still fulfilled in Christ, he's training us, as Titus 2 teaches, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled lives. So the grace of God, Jesus Christ himself, as we talked about last week, within us, is leading us to also, even though he's already fulfilled it, to uphold and fulfill the moral conditions that are his law, that the entire Old Testament testifies to. It's a character of God. It's principles that we can see as good, holy, and righteous. This is why one of the, one of the what do you think is the most sought after book of the Bible on how to raise children? What do you think it is? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has more instruction for how to teach children than any other book in the entire Bible. And if we were, well, God's already abolished the law, we would miss out on so many beautiful truths on how to instruct children in the way of the Lord. How to build a household that is pointing children to the grace of Jesus Christ. 
if we were to nullify and do away. So there's a relationship between the two. We don't go to it for salvation. We don't go to it to keep and earn our salvation. And we don't go to it in hopes that one day we'll finally achieve it. Through Jesus Christ, who's already accomplished every single bit of it for us and has applied it to our account, we are now able to navigate the Scriptures through Christ for the principles that lead us to love Him and love others. And we're freed to do that. We enjoy the process of doing that because it honors God and it brings us pleasure. It brings us pleasure. We enjoy it. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we are so thankful, God, that you have given us such a complex book. 39 books in an Old Testament that are summed up as the law and prophets. That each one of them have commands on how we should and should not act and how we should and should not think and how we should and should not live. And they can be very daunting for us. They can be very challenging for us. But by the grace of God, you have sent your son Jesus Christ to fulfill every single one of those conditions that you declare to be righteous and good and holy. We want that statement given to us. We want to be declared good and holy and righteous And we know that we will not be by trying to earn it or by trying to follow the law in our own strength. We can't do it. That's clear in Romans 3. We have all fallen short of your conditions. But Jesus, Jesus, Jesus came and from the moment of his birth to him breathing his last breath on a cross, He fulfilled every single one of your conditions, your law, your holiness, your goodness, your righteousness. He earned it. And because He earned it, God, He... He's able to give it to us freely as a gift. Because He then also took our unrighteousness He took our unholiness and he became sin so that we might be able to be saints. That's grace. And we have no one else to thank but you for that. There is no room for us to boast but to boast in you and you alone. God, thank you. Thank you. God, we pray that as we grow in your grace and your gospel, that we would see your law as a means to get to know you more, to get to love you more, And to get to love others more as we continue to steward society around us. We thank you. 
Guide us in your truth, Holy Spirit. Give us understanding and wisdom and truth. Make us more like your son Jesus every day. For it's in him that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at